Nick Cook is a journalist, serial author, and a director of research at the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. He's well known for his book, The Hunt for Zero Point, Inside the Classified World of Anti-Gravity Technology, which has strong links with the UFO phenomenon. His latest book is called The Light Beyond the Mountains, A Journey into Consciousness, Anomalous Phenomena, and Next Generation Humanity. Nick received an honorable mention in the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay competition, What is the Best Available Evidence for the Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death? This is my second interview with Nick. In the first, we focused on UFOs. Please see the description for that link, timestamps for this interview, and more. Thank you so much for doing this with me again, Nick. In our first interview, we got stuck into the UFO phenomenon. This time around, I want us to talk about survival and consciousness. So to start us off, I was hoping you could give your opinion on why there is such a taboo or stigma around discussion of topics like death, dying, and what comes next. Well, I think we all understand why death is such a difficult topic to deal with. Um, uh, you know, we're all we're all afraid of dying, or we've all got you know thoughts, strong thoughts about death. Uh, you know, it's of course inevitable, sadly, but it explains, of course, why you know no one really wants to address it. It's it is you know the giant elephant in the room of life um so i i mean i for my part i didn't get um i did i i you know i got drawn into it uh against um all expectation i was surprised to have been drawn into the subject and it happened in a surprising way um uh, in that i happened to be in attendance um with uh in 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 the same room as my wife as my mother-in-law who was much loved by the family uh lay dying and uh there were about six or seven of us in the room uh at the time and at the precise moment she died and this was about 10 years ago um my wife said an extraordinary thing she sort of stood up and said it's all all right. Everything is fine. Everything's okay. And I thought, why are you saying this? Because everything isn't okay. Your mother has just died, uh, literally in that instant. And um, this, you know, this is a really sad occasion. Why are you saying this? And I spoke to her, obviously, after her mum had, um, I guess it was probably about an hour later, and I said, why did you say what you said? And she said, didn't you experience it too? And I said, what? And she said, well, I was in this place, which was yeah. hyper-connected. It was all, uh, everything was known to me. I knew uh, everything I was supposed to know about all the information that's held in the universe. And it was all good. And in fact, it was better than that. It was all loving and I knew that everything was all right and that's why I turned around and said to the room everything's okay she's all right and I said no I said no I wasn't there I said none of us were there we were all in the room with you and wherever you went which she said was like timeless and infinite and there was no time it just she was suspended in this sort of timeless infinite space and I said the rest of us we you know we were here and wherever you were, the time to us that had passed in a second or two seconds or whatever it was. Yeah. And 
so it just really um it sort of shook me and uh, i mean i'm 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 i guess i'm nothing if not curious and i wanted to know what had happened to her because of course when something like that happens to someone you know and love and you know i knew she wasn't she wasn't making it up i mean that mm -hmm. was obvious to me um but so i wanted to know what this thing was so i of course then i googled it and then i found out actually that it's a thing you know it wasn't just my wife this had happened to but it had it 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 happened to it had happened to so many people it had a name and it was called a shared death experience yeah. now i'd heard of near death experiences i didn't i hadn't paid much attention but i'd heard of them i'd never heard of a shared death experience but sure enough a shared death experience is when i mean it's exactly, or there are variations yeah. on it, but it, you know, what happened to my wife had happened to lots of other people and, you know, almost uniformly, it's when someone's in a room with someone who is dying and at, you know, the moment of death, they have this experience. And that can be what my wife experienced, which was this sort of timeless sense of being in a place where everything is connected or um it can take on other forms like you know light appearing in the room um sometimes you don't even need to be in the room you can be many you know you can be miles away from wherever the dying person is but yeah. the, i think the point is is there is usually if not always an incredibly strong bond between the person who has the experience and the person who has died and it was really from this, Ben, this experience that I then thought, okay, um, I need to understand this in a bit more depth. Uh, so I'm going to go off and research consciousness. Yeah. And then you've been researching it ever since and still are. I have. Uh, more or less. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have. That's true. That happened 10 years ago. And I yeah. have pretty much been researching it ever since. Um, yeah. I think that's the nature of these phenomena. They draw you in and then that's it. There's, there's just the rabbit hole just keeps going deeper. I actually have the, the, the quote from your, your essay, the Bix essay that was, you know, the, the stuff your wife said, the statement that was given to you. Do you want me to read it just to kind of Ooh, accompany yeah, yeah. what you just said? So, yeah, you said this statement was given to be my, by my wife as testimony per the events described on pages six and seven in the main essay relating to the yeah the death of her mother in 2014. So she said, I felt like I'd been taken part of the way with her. I felt as as I was holding her hand, something else was holding her and that I was part of that moment. I just felt loved. I knew everything. I didn't need to know what I knew. I just understood it. I felt a part of everything, connected with everything. It was like, ah, I get it. But I can't tell you what it is that I got. There was no division. It was, I was it and it was me. All I remember on returning to the room is turning around and going, all is well, all is okay. She is fine. I had never felt more loved, more safe. I was just one with everything. I had perfect understanding of everything and knowing where, and that where she, sorry, and knowing that where she was was real. So, yeah. 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 That and that was another really strong thing that came through for her was she said wherever I was felt infinitely more real than this mm. place. Yeah. And that was in, incredible to me. Um but of course, it's not that again, it's not unique. I mean, if, if people who've had near death experiences, you know, um, Eben Alexander, and you know, there was a, I mean, 
the essay that you referenced was one that I uh, entered in a competition that was staged by Robert Bigelow, mm -hmm. uh, well known for his interest in UFOs and the survival of consciousness after death and and other sort of you know related paranormal phenomena. Um, and uh, another winner in that competition was uh, uh, an extraordinary um, lady uh, called Elizabeth Crone. And Elizabeth had a near-death experience um, when she was struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And she was, well, I mean, as you would be when you're struck by lightning. If you're not clinically dead, you're, you know, as near as... And she describes in her essay the most extraordinary, vivid experience of where she went. Um, you know, this was a this was a to her a very real place. You know, it had mm. landscapes and mountains and sky. I mean, it was all different from here, but it was for her it was real, and it was that same thing. It was more real, uh, yeah. more vivid than anything she'd experienced on Earth. So, you know, this is sort of one of those things that comes through in both shared and near-death experiences. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Again, it's something I've, I've come across a lot of people saying, yeah, it's somehow more real than like our waking reality. The thing that we experience every day as the ultimate real, like it's more real than that. And, and yeah, you get that come through the same with what she said about like love and like understanding everything, but not really knowing like, you know, what it like this kind of ineffable understanding and, and comprehension yeah. Um, that yeah, seems to be so ubiquitous around these, these kind of experiences, but it's it's really fascinating and and i'm really glad that she was happy for you to share that you know publicly and stuff because i know that these experiences can be yeah very personal and everything for people i want to circle back to the survival stuff and another one of your um stories from your family as well um but for now i'm going to read another quote from your essay um that received an honorable mention by the way um so here, this one is, we are, I will argue, approaching a moment of crisis, a fork in the evolutionary road. One direction leads towards a transhumanist future in which advances in computing, nanotech and medicine will permit the fulfillment of a materialist desire to extend our bodily survival to its absolute limit. In the other lies what might be termed an exoconscious future in which we learn to explore and ultimately to unlock capabilities within us, increasingly ignored in the hallways of science since the 17th century, that speak to the potential of humans to be so much more than they, we, currently are. The latter journey is one that we can make only by travelling inward. Um, I just thought it was a great paragraph and I wanted you to expand on what you were exactly referring to when you say these capabilities that are that are within us and that are commonly ignored and, and how you think we can unlock them. So um, in this rather strange sort of consciousness journey I've been on, um, um, some of it only makes sense when you look back. In fact, actually, a lot of it only makes sense when you look back. At the time, it makes no sense. Um, so I'm going to answer your question by um, going back a bit in time, actually, even before uh, 2014, which is when my wife had that uh, shared death experience with her mum. Cool. So Time's all happening at once anyway, so why not? Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is everywhere all at once. So, um, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, so in... So, I read a book in 2000, came out in 2001, called The Hunt for Zero Point. And, mm. you know, we talked a little bit about that last time. That was very kind of nuts and boltsy. You know, it was all about yeah. secret 
aircraft programs and exotic propulsion and energy and stuff. Um, after that, I was contacted by uh, somebody called Ingo Swan, who was um, a remote viewer on the CIA's remote viewing program, which was mm -hmm. started in about 1972. Ingo was a prolific reader uh, and researcher, and he'd come across the book soon after it was published, and he contacted me and said, do you ever come to New York? So I said, I do. Um, and so the next time I was passing through, I met him, we had dinner and he told me about his extraordinary life. Um, and we communicated thereafter quite a bit. So much so actually that when he died in 2013, his family asked whether I would write a sort of bi definitive biography of his life. Well, I never mm -hmm. did do that because there wasn't a whole lot more I could add that hadn't already been written. But uh, I did write a book about Ingo that contained two of his lost manuscripts. Um, anyway, sort of by the by. The, the point of the story is that um, Ingo always used to say that these capabilities, you know, of extrasensory perception, clairvoyance, remote viewing, you know, call it what you will, they're actually endemic. I mean, they're hardwired in us all to a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone has them, some more, um, some are more capable than others in that department. But it is a latent quality in in us all. So that sort of planted itself in my mind a little bit, but of course in I don't know, when, when did I meet Ingo first? 20, 2003, perhaps 2004. Um, I, I wasn't into any of this stuff then. It didn't really mm. register. It was like, um, okay, yeah, that's interesting, but do I believe any of this? Well, no. I mean, I was sort of really rooted in my own reality, which was writing about defense programs and writing novels and books and stuff. Um, but later, you know, after my wife had had this experience and I was on this kind of consciousness road, um, yeah, it, 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 it came back to me and I thought, well, yeah, you know, chances are Ingo is right that, or was right in that we do all have these capabilities. And since then, you know, a lot of people have done investigation work into the mechanisms, you know, within us that might connect us to what I suppose you could call an information substrate in the universe that sort of provides us with all the information that's possibly available out there because of that hyperconnection that my wife experienced. So um, the point about that sentence, I think, in the essay was I do think that we have reached some kind of fork in the road in that uh, we are you know, we're on the cusp of a quite scary time in human history and evolution in that we are confronted with a lot of threats at the moment. You know, there's the threat of, there's always the threat of conflict. There's the threat of nuclear conflict. There is, um, you know, threats of, around the whole area of artificial general intelligence and whether AI is going to get, so, you know, sentient that it's going to see us as a threat, human beings. Um, and, you know, there are other things besides. So 
here we are at this kind of fork in the road. Um, we can either go hard left down the materialist reductionist science route. And that, of course, with that comes this uh, desire to find out how we can extend our own physical lives as much as possible, as I say in that, that paragraph. Yeah. But then there's another route, which is what I call the exoconscious route. Exo, yeah, the exoconsciousness route. And that is um, to explore those facets of us, which Ingo was talking about, the unexplored facets, which um, I think, you know, if, if we were to do more of that, we might discover a more gentle, forgiving world um, in which everyone might just rub along a bit better than we currently do. Yeah. Which way do you think realistically we're going to end up going? I think we both know which way we should go. And we probably both know that things like, you know, being nicer to everybody, trying to, you know, being more open minded, meditating more, maybe these kind of things are going to help us go down one road. But yeah, which way do you think we're more likely to go? And how's, how's it going to play out? At least uh, your speculation at this point. Well, I'm going to quote um, Bernardo Castrop on this. And I don't know if you know Bernardo, but he's mm -hmm. a, 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 not only does he have a computer science background, but he's also a philosopher. Um, and he spent some time at uh, CERN as well in Switzerland. So, you know, he's uh, a, a, a bit of a polymath when it comes to all of this, but very uh, credentialed um, to, to speak on it. Um, he said a few months back, I think it might have been on Twitter, but I can't exactly remember where, that we we are confronted by some pretty profound things. Um, one that he cited was the possibility that in the next several years, we may learn that we humans are not the apex species on this planet that we thought we were and that that quite possibly we are um sharing it with uh you know what is sort of generally referred to as non-human intelligence in other words something that is other than us but which is uh you know hyper intelligent um the second was um that we would um come to new understandings about the survival of consciousness. I remember this tweet, actually. I, I, this I was so happy to, the tweet, I remember it was a tweet. I was yeah, so was. happy to see it. I was like, this is brilliant. This is like all the three areas that my yeah. podcast explores. And he's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember it well. Well, so, so sorry, he said, so, you know, those two things were sort of, he felt were going to become sort of would be made manifest in the next several years. But he said coming in the opposite direction were three big threats. And, you know, mm. two of those I've mentioned already, which is, you know, the, the threat of nuclear conflict, um, the threat of uh, artificial general intelligence becoming, you know, reaching that um, horizon event where it would um, become effectively sentient and see us as a threat. Um, and then uh, the third one was um, this notion that we are not the apex species that we uh, have always known ourselves known ourselves to be uh, and you know if we can survive those three then we might get to 
uh, be more plugged into those other two, you know, which is the the, the whole survival question, mm. and and the idea that um, you know maybe that maybe the non-human intelligence thing isn't as frightening as you know as 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 it would on the face of it first first appear. Yeah. Tell me, it's it's crazy that you were friends with Ingo and stuff. Did you ever witness him like using his psychic abilities? What you must have some some of experiences when you were with him. Were there any that particularly like stood out? No, I mean he didn't he didn't do any of that. Um, well, certainly not when I was around. And um, I, I I used to go and visit him with another great friend of mine called Robert Knight, who's uh, Robert's wonderful character. He's a rock photographer, um, photographer of rock stars. And um, he, he'd got to know Ingo very well. And so we'd often pitch up together and Ingo was a great entertainer. So he would sort of mix these cocktails at cocktail hour and we'd sit down, you know, in his rather eccentrically um, decked out uh, sitting room. Um, and I remember actually when I first went to uh, meet Ingo, um, I pitched up in a taxi outside his, he had a sort of big brownstone house in um, in the Bowery in New York. And uh, I pitched up there, not knowing what to expect. And, I, and actually I do have to say, because this was the old me, that I was a little kind of nervous about it because you know I'm about to meet a man who was once billed as the world's greatest psychic. He'd been a psychic spy for the CIA and you know all kinds of other stuff. Anyway, yeah. I, I turned up at his the address and got out the taxi, climbed up the steps, and there's this tramp sitting at the top of the steps. And I'm thinking, God, I've got to step past this, you know, poor unfortunate chap to get into Ingo's house when I ring the bell. And then I looked at him again, and he was this guy was smoking a cheroot and he had a cap on. And I thought, oh my God, that is Ingo. And so now apparently what Ingo did was, this was a test. If if he, he'd sit outside when he met somebody new, they'd approach the building. If he didn't like the look of you, if he didn't like the cut of your jib, that was as far as you got. Your energy would not pollute his inner house space. So mm. I didn't know that at the time. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, I got in, so we went into his um, his apartment. And to begin with, I seem to remember we went down these steps into his sort of basement area. And I, I was unreasonably alarmed by all of this because it was a very sort of strange place full of <laughs> odd kind of you know, artifacts like you know stuffed animal heads on the walls. And he had this voluminous library, which just disappeared into the bowels of the earth it seemed but it obviously his apartment so um it was all uh very new to me and strange um yeah. but you know we did we we obviously we talked a lot as i said we used to drink cocktails him me and robert but he never did he never sort of did tricks for his friends you know so yeah. he wouldn't do all of this stuff to um he just he enjoyed talking about things um he did offer to teach me how to remote view and mm -hmm. i've got to say i turned it down i just didn't i wasn't again i wasn't interested in that then i regret that now but i yeah. wasn't 
interested in it then. Um, so no, he didn't do any of that stuff. Um, he, I'm trying to, you know, he said he, he, he said he would, um, he was very into astrology, hugely into astrology. So he wanted to know when I was, my birthday was when I was born. And again, I was a bit reluctant to hand that information over to the world's greatest psychic, <laughs> the fear of what I might, might find out. But anyway, I did, and it was all fine. And here I am. So there. you re you realised he could get the information either way. Just well, just take it from your mind. Yeah. Like, oh no, <laughs> I'm doomed. Exactly. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah, and there were no like little instances of like you know not like him trying to put on a show or anything, but just having a download of information or like oh by the way Nick you should you know go to the doctor and check this out or like oh next week is anybody planning to do this maybe don't do that or you know was there anything like that that you you remembered? Well, no, of course that's that's what I was worried about. So mm. you know I was tiptoeing around him all the time, thinking oh God when's he going to say you know that a piano is going to fall on my head or you know, something. <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, no, he, he, I, to, to the best of my knowledge and memory, he, he didn't do any of that stuff. You know, it's again, it, he would have seen that as a bit vulgar to be absolutely honest. Uh -huh. He was very into proper stuff. You know, it was like, you didn't show off. And that I think Ingo would have constituted as showing off, um, right. If you did something, you did it meticulously and you did it properly. So if I was, if he was to teach me how to remote view, I would have had to have shown up um, in a very disciplined way, you know, for however mm -hmm. long it would have taken, a week or two weeks, you know, for the introductory course. And I would have had to, um, you know, it would have been like going to school. You know, that was his yeah. view about it. Um, I mean, through, who was it through? Robert Knight, I think. I met um, one of his students, who's a, again a remarkable remote viewer, called uh, Tom McNear, and um, Tom Tom <laughs> relates how you know it was quite scary, or it could be quite scary going to Ingo's mm -hmm. school, um, and this was when Ingo was um, contracted by the U.S. government to teach his skill to other people. Tom McNear, having been in the US Army. So uh, at the time he was being taught. So uh, yeah, he was he was a disciplinarian, Ingo was he, he believed that the combination of, you know, talent, discipline, um, hard work, a lot of research would trigger these latent capabilities, you know, uh, and allow you to remote view uh, yeah. if your mind was open to it. Mm. Wow. Um, what did you make of his manuscripts as well? And there was one like with the Titan, right? That kind of was uh, seemed to be reminiscent of the Titanic, which was a I, I don't know how many years. Um, I, I don't know the yeah the what was your what were your thoughts on that anyway? Sure. Um, actually, for me, that was one of the most remarkable stories in the book. I mean, I know it wasn't his story, but so perhaps I should say that the book is called um, "Resurrecting the Mysterious." And it's um, uh, amazingly, I find myself co-authoring a work with Ingo Swan, even though Ingo <laughs> had passed away five or six years before, yeah. before it came out. Um, but in it, in it the, the story you reference is one that he makes quite a big deal of, which is 
Um, I think it was in 1898, an author called Morgan Robertson wrote a book, uh, a novella um, called The Wreck of the Titan. Um, and the Titan, according to, to Robertson's book, was a giant ocean-going liner. Um, mm -hmm. It embarked on a, its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. It hits an iceberg. It sinks. All hands, not all hands, but you know, many many lives are lost. Bloody bloody blah. blah, blah. Um, the dimensions of the ship are almost identical to the Titanic, which does all of this for real. Fourteen years later, mm. and the point that Inga was making in the manuscript was, given these similarities, given not only you know had Morgan Robertson picked up some vibe which gave him all of this information 14 years before it happened for real. Yeah. But other people, Ingo pointed out, um, you know, there, 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 was, there was, a, was a sort of plethora of um, psychic experiences by people before the Titanic sailed that, mm. um, you know, which resulted in people, for example, stepping off the ship at the last moment because they had a bad feeling, you know, right. all those sorts of things. And so Ingo said this to him suggested that our reality is an awful lot more fluid than the materialist reductionist um, view of reality would want us to think or believe yeah. in that there is clearly leakage from the future to the past. And, and you know, as time is fluid, everything everywhere all at once and all of that um who knows you know it doesn't just have to flow backwards it can flow forwards but this to him the the titan titanic episode was clear evidence that there is you know and picked up by certain people information that can flow back which can then be received if only the receiver is in the mind uh, or or of a mind or talent to be able mm -hmm. to decode that information yeah yeah well it's, it is fascinating all of that have, have you ever had any personal psychic experiences or experiences along these lines no matter how kind of small or irrelevant seeming i mean not really there was a i don't think i put it in my essay maybe I, no i didn't put it in my bix essay but i do mention it in the ingo book um when when I was at um, when I was at university, we lived in a very remote farmhouse, um, student digs, and I I, I was uh, it was quite a it was you know rumored to be quite a spooky place you know by previous students. Of course, none of us paid it any attention because you're just students and you don't care about stuff like that. But I, towards the end of my uh, time there. In fact, actually, it was my very last night, I think, there. Um, I was about to do my very final, final exam, and I was going to leave the next day and go home. And um, a friend had come around for dinner, and he'd just been reminding me about these sort of stories about the place, and which got me to thinking then about the house. And so as I went to sleep, slightly disturbed by all of this, sort of all of these stories, I said, there are no ghosts here. And at that moment, there was a terrible banging on the door which um could not possibly be explained by student japes or anything else because 
this place was literally in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so I got up and I left. I thought, there's no way I'm staying. This is like one o'clock in the morning. There is no way I'm staying here. I'm I'm off. Um, yeah. And so I got in my car and I drove to the nearest neighboring farmhouse, which was about two miles away. And I stayed there for the night. That's that's all. That's that's the only real experience. Uh, well, I think yeah. real experience. It's the only sort of experience like that I've ever had. Yeah, it was enough for enough for a lifetime, I suppose. Scared the scared the crap scared out of you. Scared the daylights like. out of me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going back to your Bix essay about the yeah the best available evidence for the survival of consciousness after permanent bodily death. Um, can you briefly talk about some of the or summarize some of what you felt was the most compelling objective evidence that you included in there? So I'm going to circle back to your other experience that was within your family after that. But yeah, just what were kind of maybe the, the headlines that the highlights that stick out to you was the most credible, convincing aspect? Well, I think the thing that comes to mind first is all the near death experience testimony. And mm. a lot of that, you know, there, there are two aspects to that. Um, there is the one is the one we've already discussed, which is, you know, people like Eben Alexander described going to a place um, which is not here, but it is real. It seems more real than 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 our earthly existence. Um, and a lot of those descriptions, they might all be different for people, but they kind of comport in that there's a lot of sort of crossover similarity in 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 uh in the discussion of that um but i think more sort of compelling in a way than that is what is sort of the what they call the the veridical evidence around what experiences see sort of mm. soon after they quotes die um in that they get this kind of omnivision i mean they can see anywhere and then it, you can see through walls they get a you know a, a global view of whatever it is that they're looking at um and some of those descriptions are extremely compelling because you know there's a one i think i cite in the essay i think it's known quite famously as the case of maria's shoe um mm -hmm. maria had quotes died in hospital when she had a a, a heart attack um and when she came round again um when she was you know brought back to life so to speak um she was so keen to tell her the doctors and nurses what had happened to her that in amongst all the other things she described about how they sort of you know tried to revive her and she'd seen all of that she said you know i can prove it because i was transported outside the hospital itself above the hospital and when i was above it, I could see on a window ledge that is not overlooked by anything that there is a shoe. And this was a, um, a running shoe, a, a track shoe. And she described it perfectly. And when somebody tried to look out, you know, they couldn't see it from the window, but somebody somehow managed to get onto this shelf, this ledge. And sure enough, there was a shoe. And it was exactly as she described. So, you know, if you're a debunker, you can go, yeah, well, you know, she put it there or somebody else did or she knew about it. And of course, all of those things are possible. But, you know, I always feel that 
when you have to spend more time and energy debunking a whole load of stuff than you do actually going with Occam's razor, which is as odd as it may sound, the simplest explanation, which is somehow or other, her consciousness saw that shoe. And, yeah. and perhaps, you know, you're able to do that because it's not just Maria who's had this experience. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who have relayed these experiences. You know, another chap um, I interviewed was a doctor called uh, Pim Van Lommel. Mm -hmm. And he has, he, Pim was a heart surgeon. And all of this stuff came to his attention because he started to see a pattern. I mean, near-death experiences weren't known to him when he started to see a pattern. And the pattern was his patients coming round after they had they were quote clinically dead all saying or a lot of them saying you know i've been to a place it it was timeless infinite hyper connected um you know i went to a light i went beyond the light to a you know beautiful rolling landscape of green hills and yeah and on it went and he then started to look into it and he saw those patterns you know so I, i'm i'm I was raised professionally in a quite a cynical profession, which was journalism. The branch of it actually that I, I was in, which was trade technical journalism, is probably in its own way even more cynical in that actually all you deal with are the facts. You know, it's yeah. does this bit of kit work? If not, why not describe it? So that that's been my that's been my position in all of this is to try and kick the tires of it all and see the evidence in the round and seeing the evidence in the round, you know, enabled me to come to some of the conclusions I did in that big essay. Yeah. And um, just to add on, I think the, with the shoe, I think if I remember rightly, the, um, the lady that had the experience i think she was like out of town or something or out of her normal area where she lived maybe and so she and she was on an she taken in on emergency i think so again thinking of it from like a you know a, a, a trying to explain it from a logical you know a, a skeptical point of view which is what i did when i first came across it just like you it's like oh yeah she couldn't really have even planned that one like in this because because it was she she didn't know she was going to be going into hospital sure if maybe if it was a routine procedure and it was in your local hospital and yeah. you know maybe you have friends and the staff but but yeah i mean i think ultimately when you definitely what you said about occam's race and when you look at all of this evidence you stand back and you take it all in and, and even even if you just take in like one percent of the evidence that goes in favor of the survival hypothesis it is very much occam's razor it's very much like this is clearly the obvious hypothesis that we have to follow like uh it, debunking one case is is one thing but debunking like uh, the whole lot I, I just don't see how it can be done. On that note, can you share the, the story, again, you included it in your essay, of your your grandmother, Pamela? Yeah. Um, so uh, so my, my parents divorced when I was very young and when, in fact, when I was five. So my, my, my dad had a job, my mother wasn't there. Um, so my sister and I went to live with my grandparents and we they lived in a big old fairly rambling house i mean it wasn't that she wasn't that rambling but it was a big old house and yeah. um we 
it, it was amazingly actually considering you know the, the circumstances it was an amazingly happy time for me and my sister um and so you know we i wouldn't describe us remotely as troubled children and in any case what i'm about to describe wasn't known to us um but about yeah. so we lived there i think for about two and a half years and then after uh, about a year there my grandmother died and um one of the things she'd done in life was she was an insomniac so she used to go up into the attic and she would sweep the attic she'd clean it all out and you know um rearrange things and sort things out and you could hear this going on there was a sort of and there was a particularly distinctive signature was this um clack clack of the broom as the broom hit the uh the, the the sideboard um up there and so about i think it was a couple of nights after she died maybe a, a night after she died my dad was staying in the house and he woke up in the middle of the night to hear this clack 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 going on above him in in the attic and and actually um i mean interestingly i don't think i relay this in the essay but what actually he relayed to you know, my sister and I years later was that he could then hear her coming down the stairs. Oh, um, there was another, actually, there's another component to this, which I don't put in the essay. But the thing that woke him up in the first place was he felt my grandmother put her hand in his. That's what woke him oh, up. Oh, wow. And hmm. she had a very, she had very distinctive arthritic joints. So he, you know, I mean, there was no one in the room. It was just him and the hand. And yeah. Uh, and then he started to hear her come down the stairs and then he got frightened and he said, I don't want this. I don't want this to happen. You know, please. Wow. I don't want, I don't want this to happen. And, and then it went away. Um, and then I think I also describe how, uh, some, sometime later, I think it was weeks or months. Um, he and my grandfather were mm. having a dispute about her will. <laughs> And at that moment, as my dad described it, the lamp lifted up on the table beside them and did a sort of gyration in the air before settling back mm. down with a bump on the table again. And yeah. um, and as I say in the essay, you know, for all of this, you know, my dad, my dad was a very practical person. He was an engineer. He was a very practical individual. So for him, this was all about, well, hang on a second, uh, you know, how did that lamp lift in the air? How was it getting its energy? Um, he, and he didn't quite so much attach a sort of uh, consciousness, and we didn't really, I don't think, attach a consciousness thing to it at all. But he wanted to know, he wanted to know how science could account for what he had witnessed or an experience. Yeah. Um, I think on, in retrospect, and certainly talking to, family members my dad was classically psychic but just didn't realize he was um he had lots of sort of strange things happened around him particularly when he was younger um so i just you know i i, I he was kind of connected in that way i think yeah that's fascinating and what an amazing story again like uh it's so so cool that you've had at least two of these kind of uh events take place in your your family your close family um well, I suspect, awesome. you know, that lots of people have these stories in their families, but, you know, not everyone talks about them because, mm. you know, you, it's like, you know, there is, as we know, there's, there's I mean, less now, but there was 
there has been taboo around this whole subject area and people don't like to 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 draw that level of attention to themselves perhaps if they've had those experiences but um you know thankfully i think that's going away and uh but i think you know we'd all be amazed if we only knew how many experiences like that really had happened in people's families i suspect it would be I totally a lot agree. more than we think yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And with the, the kind of psychic everyday kind of things happening, I think that yeah. so many experiences of that would get just dismissed and, and and not talked about. And of course, we have the taboo around death and dying now, mostly uh, in a large way, I guess, because religion is not such a big thing right now, um, or it's kind of waned in Western society, at least. And so people are maybe more afraid of dying, um, like that kind of out, just total fear of it. Whereas... I guess a few years ago, a few decades ago, a couple of decades ago, there would have been religion would have still been a lot more popular. And so there would have been less fear maybe of death, but more fear of saying I had this experience that doesn't necessarily slot perfectly into my religion. And so I don't feel comfortable sharing it with my friends or family who follow the same religion as me and go to the same church as me or the same service as me every week and, and that kind of thing. So it's almost like the taboos kind of stayed the same, but for slightly different reasons, like the the reasons of slightly change the the ratio yeah and you know i think there's an interesting thing around that too ben because um back in the day the day you're describing where religion had this you know uh a function in everyday life that it does not have today you know and a role and a place yeah you know we don't have that now but what do we have you know we have there we have mental health pandemics um mm. across the world, um, particularly amongst young people. Um, of course, you know, all of that is tied, or a lot of that is tied to technology and the fact that, you know, we are disassociated from quotes real life because we're actually spending time on our phones or on our computers or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and we have cut ourselves off or are increasingly cutting ourselves off from um, that sort of spiritual connection perhaps which yeah. you know religion religion once formed that um connection and you know without it look what happens i'm not saying that religion is the answer necessarily to people's mental health issues but yeah. religion i think seemed to act as a kind of safety valve for a lot of spiritual angst that people would get and without that safety valve, you know, society has problems now. And it gets me back to that fork in the road that we were talking about earlier. You know, one fork takes you to, to this transhumanist desire to perpetuate your physicalness, you know, your, your beauty, your aesthetics, you know, whatever it is, not to mention your life itself for as long as possible, but it neglects mostly the other side, which is the that inner side. And you know, we sort of pretty much know that if you neglect that, um, you you wither. You know, I mean, we can all name you know rich people, rock stars, businessmen, whoever, who you know, um, relay the fact that money does not buy them happiness. That is not the solution to, you know, um, any or all of the problems that we have. You know, it's something else. So, yeah. you know, sort of 
I guess my point for bringing that up in the essay was we are at a sort of, I think we are at this crossroad or we are at this fork in the road um, as, a, as, a, as a species where we do have that choice. Um, and it may be that that choice will actually be forced upon us. So uh, you, I don't think we can ignore it. I mean, I think we are ignoring it, obviously, because people aren't addressing the issue. But sooner or later, you know, looking at you know the evidence that I, uh, I I I I bring up in the essay, and actually, you know, we haven't mentioned it yet, but I've just started uh, to serialize a new book on Substack. Uh, I'm doing this every two weeks, and it is about this journey that we're talking about, you know, into consciousness, and it describes yeah. sort of the um, uh, the 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 road taken by a pretty you know hard boiled nuts and bolts skeptical hack journalist you know which is what I was um, and as I say uh, to a degree still am um, into you know this sort of the whole consciousness field and looking at the evidence some of which we've talked about today um, for you know. Um, paranormal phenomena which seems to support or at least lies at the outer edges that sort of outlier phenomena of a an emerging science paradigm but one which we are at the moment uh sort of pushing away and i say we are you know the mainstream science community is pushing away for very obvious reasons which is you know the last century and whatever we are, you know, a quarter of this one has been built on some pretty solid structural principles, you know, founded in Einstein's theory of general re relativity, which is, you know, gives us our big picture view of the universe and then quantum mechanics, which provides, you know, which provides us uh, a, a picture of the very small, never the twain shall meet because those two don't marry up yet, but um, so, but but those outlier phenomena, you know, and we can name some of them, if not all of them, if they are, you know, near-death experiences, shared death experiences, remote viewing, shamanic wisdom, psychedelic, you know, um, uh, psychonauts who experiment with DMT and other drugs. Um, and you know, even UFOs and unidentified aerial phenomena, those are outlier phenomena, which science isn't looking at or taking seriously. Um, but, you know, as I say in the introduction to this book, which is called The Light Beyond the Mountains, which I'm serializing, um, though I think we ignore those phenomena at our peril because they do seem to be portals into a new paradigm, an, an emerging science paradigm that, mm. um, you know, is, I, I think I, we, I think we need a new understanding of the world and of the universe because we're not really making sense of this one. And um, science sticks its hand up and owns up to that because uh, it has a problem on its hand hands in that, um, you know, astrophysically, 
there is a, an anomaly out there, which is that 95% of the universe is made up of dark energy and dark matter. Uh, those are terms used by science because it doesn't know why the universe is expanding at this accelerating rate. It just says, oh, it must be due to dark matter or dark energy. But no one knows what dark matter or dark energy are. Um, mm. So we're left with science actually saying, well, we only really understand 5% of existence. And that's the 5% of matter and energy, you know, the energy we know about um that we see in the universe help <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and we do need that help big time and to back to go back to what you were saying i do think you're right in that religion served as this thing to kind of connect us and and so we were in this different place i think that's a lot of the reasons that things are going so badly now and that we're we're looking at this fork in the road and we're not necessarily putting our feet into the right one is because we're we, we're so disconnected as a society and as a civilization like there's so many problems Steve Taylor is a psychologist in the UK and I read his book called Disconnected and I think it really kind of paints a really a really good picture of to how we've kind of fallen into this mess because we haven't always been like this um, and I mean there's so much I could say I could ramble on about this forever but it's like indigenous cultures and stuff used to be a lot more aware of the kind of things you're talking about right like uh our abilities to tap into like precognitive things or or healing are. or yeah it still are yeah exactly um and and so i think we're going to come full circle hopefully and get back to there rather than going for the kind of Neuralink road um but yeah we'll see and and yeah we could unpack this for ages but to get back to to survival i want to ask you what your thoughts are on children with past life memories children that report past life memories and the works of ian stevenson jim tucker over at dops and and yeah what do you what do you make of this phenomenon and how strong do you think uh, it contributes to the evidence well i'll i'll hold my hand up and go that was probably the bit of the Bix essay that I looked into least um, mm -hmm. in, in that I did draw down all their, a lot of their evidence. So you, you know, you cited uh, Ian Stevenson and, and others who've done great work on the, I mean, really academically driven data-driven work on this um, out of the university of Virginia, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ian Stevenson's work on reincarnation, I think, presents something like two and a half thousand cases. Um, yeah. And, okay, you know, you can dismiss some of them, maybe. You can dismiss a lot, perhaps. But you can't really dismiss two and a half thousand cases, which I think is what, you know, provides this sort of compelling other component to all of this that we're talking about, which is, you know, the Bix essay question was provide the best evidence for the survival of consciousness after death, post-death. Mm. Um, and I think for many of the entrants who went in for that competition, me included, it emerged as we were doing the research for it and for other stuff that we were engaged in, that that wasn't the right question. The question actually is, what is the, provide the best evidence for the continuation of mm -hmm. the survival of consciousness before and after death. Right. And that is sort of what Ian Stevenson's work um, seems to point to 
uh, and and others, of course, that actually, you know, we think not unnaturally, we come into the world, you know, we die. And if there is, if we have a consciousness, that part of us might, if we're lucky, survive and go on. Um, but as, you know, as Ian Stevenson, Pim Van Lommel, you know, and others say, no, 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 actually, there is evidence for, of course, you know, previous lives, just as there is sort of evidence, data-driven, for survival post-death. So um, anyway, that's, that was sort of the, that was the conclusion, if you like, or at least the analysis that I was able to draw from that data, which was, no, we shouldn't be looking at it in terms of just post-consciousness survival, but actually a continuation. And therefore, you know, what then that allows you to do, I think, is to see our existence here on Earth as a sort of, as a moment in which that consciousness comes into a, um, a frequency, if you want to call it that, that literally materializes us. You know, it 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 incarnates us into into this, and of course, not only does it incarnate us, but everything else that appears solid and real in our reality. You know, the tree outside my window, the earth, everything. Um, so, you know, and I'm not a scientist; I can't explain that in hard and fast scientific terms. Um, but I think. Uh, I think actually there is a pretty big hole in the science spectrum covering this portion of 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 existence. Um, I don't think science really can account for it much either. You know, we can perhaps go into the nature of reality in a bit, you know, but some people have done some really good work. Scientists have done some really good work on the nature of reality and concluded that it's a lot more squirrely than, um, you know, physics, chemistry and biology textbooks would have us believe when we were at school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the names of Jim Tucker's book and Bruce Grayson's book uh, kind of sum up what you were saying quite well about like before and after, quite simply put, like, uh, so I, I think those are great. And and you're right, like these cases, there's, I think they're up to like 2,700, 2,800 now on the books at DOPS. And I'd love to hear anybody that thinks that they can dismiss those cases. And I'd love to hear other, ex I mean, what do you make of the super psi hypothesis? Do you give that any credence at all? Because obviously some people would say that, oh, maybe you can explain these cases via super psi, right? Like you can say that these these kids are having downloads of information. Do you, do you give that any weight at all or uh i think you have to acknowledge it in fact i acknowledge it in the essay um in that leslie Keane's book i think on this um draws our attention to it which is that yeah sure enough none of this may be about survival of consciousness post-death it, it may be that there is a consciousness around a body that um, still has the potential to come back, even if it's not actually dead. I mean, sorry, even if it's clinically dead, it still has the potential 
to come back, which of course it does because that's why it's a near-death experience. So she acknowledges that and then de facto the capacity and I'm I, I'm not that familiar with the super side concept, but I think I understand what you're saying, which is that it that 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 psychically we are able to derive the information that we think is indicating there is a survival post of consciousness post death thing, but in fact is a psychic download from you know whoever or whatever. Um, if if that's the case, and if that's what it is that's still pretty extraordinary because we can't explain that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. That was my first take when I came across it. I was like, either way, my mind is blown. So I, yeah. for now, I'm just going to keep reading. But yeah, I think the idea with Super Sai is that it's the, essentially the idea is that psychic um, abilities, let's say for this, are unlimited in their strength and what they can do. And so by that logic, essentially all of the survival evidence could perceivably be psychic effects rather than proof of survival i think there's loads of particular individual elements of the evidence that kind of really challenge that but it's difficult you know to do it like a hundred percent completely completely shut down that hypothesis because obviously you're dealing with something that if it's unlimited in its potential of what it can do then then where do you go with that? I mean, one of the main things when it comes to the reincarnation cases is how the children really identify emotionally with the previous personality and they'll like cry and they'll they'll long for their previous parents and that kind of thing, which I think is really fascinating. Um, yeah. One of the things on that as well is online, you've probably seen this and not just online in general, like when people talk, what do you think happens after we die? Oh, same as before I was born, nothing, you know, like that kind of thing is the, the classic trope of the, the somebody just like, oh, yeah, same as blackness, just like before I was born, just darkness, nothing. And, and it's like, yeah, but what happened before I was born? I don't actually remember what happened before I was born, but there are plenty of people that do remember what happened before they were born. And there's quite a lot of them that have had these memories verified and they're they're on they're on a day database like we said at the university of virginia and they are fascinating if anybody's not that familiar with them i highly recommend reading jim's books um or watch my interview with jim or yeah just just learn more about them because they are they are really fascinating you also in your essay you touched on um this kind of light phenomena light at the end like when somebody is transitioning when they are dying um can you just briefly say a few words about that and about you know what you yeah what you found well, one of the people I interviewed, um, and actually I didn't interview any of these people for the Bix essay, um, mm -hmm. the post-death you know, consciousness survival essay. Um, I was interviewing them uh, before that, before I before the contest was even announced, uh, because I was researching this whole field. Um, but one of the people I interviewed was a wonderful chap called um, Peter Fennick, um, who's a doctor. Mm. Peter's done a lot of work on aspects of, you know, survival uh, of consciousness. End of life experiences a lot as well, right? And say again? It's, I think one of his focuses in it is like end of life experiences. End of life experiences, like totally. A, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, he's a doctor with a neuroscientific background. So, you know, we need to listen to what he says. Um, yeah. And he talks about the light phenomenon um, quite a lot. And... You ha you know, anecdotally, you have these stories, you know, George Harrison, when he died, um, you know, the light was said to have filled the room in which he died by, you know, mm -hmm. his, his family members. Um, plenty of people attest to that same thing. Um, and 
and and Peter Fennick talks about it quite a lot. Um, he he talks about some quite interesting experiments, the details of which elude me now because it was a while back. But um, with a uh, with 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 a French um, spiritual sort of meditative uh, teacher, a meditation teacher called yeah. Alain Forget. And um, they were able to measure the sort of the, what, what, what he called, Peter called the giving and receiving of light between, um, between them. And this was all, you know, measured on an EEG. And it was deemed, I think, I hope I've got this right, that the light had a strange quality about it. It wasn't a sort of physical light as we mm. understand it, but something rather more elusive. Um, and then yeah, sort of the research runs out and he says that, you know, we need to do more work on this, but, you know, it, it is a component of all of this. And I think it is something that, as I say in the essay, I think it's something that can be studied and probably, probably deserves to be studied. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's really fascinating. And there's loads of accounts of like hospice workers and stuff seeing light at the moment the person dies. And when you say, yeah, it's like um, this kind of almost non-physical, I can't remember the word you just used to describe it, but it's almost like an apparitional light, you know, yeah. like in the sense that these apparitions can be seen by some people, but not others. This light would yeah. seem to be the same kind of thing, Very much so. um, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I've got a quick uh, one, one or two quick questions for one of my patrons called Jeremy, and then I've got a few questions to to bring us to the end. A few of the, you know, like what is reality? The thing we were mentioning earlier. Um, so from Jeremy, he wants to know: Do you think we might find a technological way to communicate with another layer of reality if it exists? Uh, so you know, take that for what you want, but another layer of reality could be where whatever our soul or consciousness goes after this bodily experience um, or something else? I don't know whether it will be achieved. I mean, I do know that people have attempted to build this equipment. Um, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I could, I could probably waffle on about this, but I wouldn't <laughs> really know what I'm talking about. So I'll probably sort of draw a line under it there. I mean, I do know that attempts have been made to uh, develop equipment that yeah. supposedly communicates with the dead. Um, but beyond that, I don't I don't know anything about that, really. Fair enough. I, I think Gary Schwartz is working, one of the people that's working on yeah. something like that, the soul phone over at the University of Arizona. Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think still in progress, I think. I, I've tried to get him on the show, no luck yet, but hopefully at some point. Um, all I'll, I'll follow up on Jeremy's thing with you just to say, don't worry about like uh, talking about it much, just your personal speculation. Do you think we might find that way, technologically speaking, in the future? I mean, given enough time, I think we can find out pretty much anything and um yeah i i do uh i mean there are a lot of givens there you know yeah given we can yeah. prove the survival <laughs> of consciousness post death given this given that but yeah i mean given we don't wipe ourselves out before then yeah, yeah all of that exactly all of that stuff but yes i mean given all of that i have faith in our ability to tap into spectrum spectra 
that we are not able to currently. I mean, sort of history gives us some sense of this. We see, you know, uh, what we see, but we can now see yeah. in the infrared with technology, you know, we can see in ultraviolet, yeah. we can, you know, we can see in all kinds of bandwidths we couldn't see in over a hundred years ago. So yeah, I, I sort of think that given enough time and we don't blow ourselves up, we probably would succeed in that endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. And he also wanted to know, have you heard about shadow people? I've heard about them, but I don't know anything about them. Um, no, haven't delved into the research no. there. No, me, me neither, no. yeah, unfortunately. Uh, um, this question is one that I asked uh, Stanley Krippner, the great Stanley Krippner. I asked him to come up with a question for me that I could kind of generally put to people in these areas that would kind of, you know, be a really interesting question. And he came up with this and I thought it was great. And, and so I wanted to ask you, what role, if any, did anomalous experiences say precognitive dreams ndes healing that kind of thing precognitive dreams what role if any did these anomalous experiences play in human evolution well um that's a really interesting question um i think we have to take that back a bit and go well what was it that turned humanity homo sapiens onto being conscious and sentient mm -hmm. in the first place i mean that is a mystery as far as i'm aware i mean it is um so you know we have this uh we have a, a sort of you know archaeological paleontological record of you know humanity's emergence um and that's not well defined, but it's, you know, there are lots of people who are doing very good work in that space. But we have a, you know, a gap between the emergence of humanity, what, about uh, 150, 200,000 years ago? I mean, in the sense of um, a form that we would sort of archaeologically recognize as ourselves. Um, but then there is this gap between there and um and what we see in terms of sort of artistic evidence you know if artistic evidence is any evidence at all of some form of expression you know uh, some unburdening of some thing deep within us that we need to get out you see those on cave paintings that emerge i think i'm right in saying about 50 to 60,000 years ago, you know, so we have this sort of big gap, you know, what were we doing in between times? You know, were we sentient in the way that we would understand ourselves to be today or not? Um, you know, I happen to uh, uh, have had conversations with a, a brilliant guy called Professor Lee Berger, who has done some great, great work on um, a, uh, a, a a species unrelated to humans, as far as we can tell, called Homo naledi, which was uh, Lee has discovered um, in South Africa uh, in deep cave systems, and I think I'm right in saying that you know they go back 300,000 years and display evidence of um, human-like traits of you know burying the dead and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, you know these are. Uh, we're, we're making discoveries all the time. You know, we're learning about ourselves more and more all the time. But I, I you know, I think as 
I think I'm right in saying I'm not an expert in this at all, um, that uh, the emergence of sentience in humanity is still a deep, deep, dark mystery. We clearly agree that survival is the most likely hypothesis, the most likely outcome after death. We, we clearly both agree, or continuation, however you want to phrase it, we clearly both agree on that. But what do you, in your kind of, again, we can kind of be personal speculation if you want, what do you think that that will actually look like, be like, what parts of us will survive death or survive our bodily death? Yeah, in your opinion, what what do you what do you think it's actually going to be like? Because again, we've got all these kind of reincarnation NDs. We've got these various different things that kind of could point us in different directions, and we have to kind of fit them all into this puzzle. So yeah, I can honestly say I don't. Obviously, I don't know. I mean, yeah. and I'm sort of I'm leery about speculating what I believe because mm -hmm. I, I I don't know. Um, or what do you believe the evidence points towards? I mean, wherever, I mean, I know it's kind of, we're in speculative area. Well, <laughs> all no I can do that. is I can go on, you know, evidence and testimony of people who have had near-death experiences, you know, who, yeah. um, Elizabeth Crone, you know, her, her experience, which you can read, by the way, as a Bix essay, is remarkable. Um, Eben Alexander's is remarkable. Um, there is some crossover between their experiences and the experiences of so-called psychonauts who have, you know, under controlled conditions, um, have ingested substance, substances like, you know, DMT, which put them into a, give them a sort of, you know, psychedelic sense of an alternate reality. And some of their experiences crossover and comport with what near-death experiences talk about you know these those sorts of realms mm -hmm. um in which information is presented to them um so you know i would i would tend to for me you know i'm comfortable focusing on those and going yeah that's interesting evidence it, it might not be clear evidence of the survival of consciousness post-death or before birth. Um, but to me, it is data. You know, there, it, there, there's data there that is already being examined by outfits like Imperial College London, which is looking into the whole psychedelic question of, you know, um, mm -hmm. what we experience when we ingest substance, substances like DMT. Uh, so, first of all, we've got to look at the data and actually we've got to get science to acknowledge that there is something to look at here. Um, mm. You know, this should be, I, when I said earlier, I think it should just be much more widely looked at than it currently is. And, and I, I hope that that's coming. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It should be way, yeah, it should be absolutely one of the priorities. It should be one of the most interesting, well, it is one of the most interesting questions and it is, it's one of the greatest questions that we've ever asked as a, a species, right? Hopefully we will start to see more and more 
funding and and research in this area i have two kind of questions that are both uh could be lengthy questions left maybe i'll i'll tell you what both of them are and maybe you can kind of find a way to merge your answer uh, into one so on the one hand it was something you alluded to a little bit earlier when you said about the nature of reality so it is essentially that what what is the nature of reality and again it's a little bit speculative on the other hand again speculation overlaps connections gray areas parallels links etc etc between the ufo phenomenon consciousness and and these other phenomena that we've talked about today uh well on the first question about the nature of reality um good question uh but, but um what i always point people to is the work of professor donald hoffman uh which mm-hmm. was a breakthrough for me because inevitably not having a, a science pure science background what i'm looking for you know i'm particularly as you know i'm a storyteller too you know i try and sense make by assembling narratives and um what donald hoffman has done and he's a professor of cognitive science at the university of california in irvine um what he has done is to give us this analogy of re- our experience of reality being analogous to the way we derive data from our from a computer in that i'm looking at you now through a uh, graphical user interface and on that interface there are various icons that i click on to get my computer to do what i want it to um so saith uh, donald hoffman uh we should perhaps sort of view our experience of reality in that we have as human beings developed an interface which cuts out a lot of the extraneous um signaling that we just mm-hmm. don't need um because we only need a certain amount for survival and <clears throat> so um you, you know behind that literally you know hoffman is saying is that there are depth levels to reality and existence that we just we could not make make sense of you know it is so strange it is um composed of you know electromagnetic fields that you know we know are there they are uh they emerge out of essentially nothing i mean in that you know we have uh evidence for a zero point energy field which are you know fluctuating 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 particles that emerge from what well the vacuum the um the, you know the the vacuum of space uh they emerge and then they disappear again you know where do they go when they disappear where do they emerge from we don't know but that's sort of the 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 bottom level uh, layer of reality physical reality that we can get to um there must be a something further than that or it, it, it is implied in that that there is something beyond but you know that's where our interface with reality ends so um so that for me is a really interesting analogy uh that he draws there and it's one that i can get my head around in that we as human beings uh click on reality much as we do on the icon that i need to click on on my computer screen and 
those clicks, which are infinite, of course, because they describe our experiences with reality, um, they produce more icons, which we then click on and so on and so forth. But perhaps the the point that I would take away from that in that is that what science is increasingly tell, telling us is that the universe is built on more than those um, fluctuating you know, subatomic particles that flash in and out of existence. It is actually built on information itself. That's, mm. that's the substrate. Um, who knows, maybe there are substrates beyond that, but that increasingly is, you know, is what science is telling us, you know, lies at the base of existence, baseline. Um, and therefore, when we, you know, to use an expression, click on these icons, which in turn produce more icons, what this would suggest is that this is an, a two-way information exchange system and that there is information that we derive from the universe, but by the same token, we are, and not just human beings, I mean, but all of, all of creation is, is sending information back into the substrate. So a bit like a computer itself, which becomes self-learning. You know, you could argue, and some people do, that this is, the universe is a giant computational machine that um, on one hand resembles a machine, but on the other resembles, you know, a giant thought, you know, the dream of the dreamer. And of course, you know, who is the dreamer? We don't know. You know, of course, it could be people's idea of God. But whatever it is, you know, if it is anything at all, um, it it appears to to be growing, or there is the capacity for it to grow from the accumulated knowledge of this feedback mechanism that it has created and you know we are the feedback mechanism as is all of creation and i find that quite an interesting idea because it blends science yeah computing it blends yeah. um a sort of philosophy the idea that you know there is uh an uh, a, a idealistic nature to the universe which comports with a sort of philosophical view and there's a spiritual dimension to it as well. So you get the blend of all of these three three things, which is, you know, physics, spirituality, and philosophy. And, you know, I think all of these tools should be used in explorations of who we are and why we're here and, you know, and what the great beyond is that we experience. Yeah. Wow. 
I'll read a couple of lines here that at the end of your essay, the ones you kind of finish out with, because they kind of felt well, like uh, fit you'll have to remind me of, what I've uh, said. Nature of reality. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't an inte- why would an intelligent, sentient, self-aware, loving universe put itself through all the trials and tribulations of life as we experience it, with its suffering and its beauty and everything in between? The answer, perhaps, is that we are sorry. Is is that the only way it has of experiencing itself? And thus, maybe when you strip away all the science, this is why existence is, so that it can know itself, it can learn and evolve. Um, I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> it was a, I, I a mean, nice way of framing it. Uh, you know, as as I mean, this will resonate with a lot of people who create, um, which is sometimes you look back on stuff and you go, I don't know where that came from. And, and to be yeah. honest, I don't know where that came from um, because I think if I tried tried to write that again now I, I wouldn't be able to so it sort of you know musicians talk about this you know stuff comes from it seems when you're in a sort of creative state to come from somewhere else not that I'm trying to ascribe any you know massive particularly sort of deep meaning to all of that except that it is it does touch on what we've just been speaking about which is um Yes, of course, you know, there is joy and there's pain and there is suffering and everything in between. Um, And it doesn't make any sense. You know, when you're going through a horrible time, you go, why the hell is this happening to me? You know, how and, you know, we have terrible tragedies, um, horrible tragedies. And we go, well, you know, that makes no sense. Um, Why would a creator allow us to go through that if you're of a religious disposition um and that's the best i can come up with which is that if 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 we are those biofeedback mechanisms that feed into the knowledge base of a giant computational machine for which you can translate that as creation then that would be the only way it would have of experiencing itself, but possibly too in that way that we were talking about a moment ago, where you you get all manner of creativity amongst those that the machine or God or whatever you want to call it has created, then perhaps there are even things that the creator didn't know about its own creation that might come into being. I mean, who knows? But anyone who's ever got into that sort of creative space, you know, I mean, I'm astounded when I go into an art gallery and I see some expression of beauty, which is just extraordinary. Where did that come from? You know, um, uh, just as I am with a piece of music that is just, you know, sublime or whatever. So yeah. that's what I like. That's what I choose to think. Um, it might not be a particularly scientific conclusion, but it's it for me, it's a hopeful conclusion. And that's what I choose to think, therefore. Yeah. Um, to change pace, just before we kind of wrap up, what are your thoughts on all the latest happenings in, in the world of uh, UFOs and everything going on over there? Well, I've followed it a bit um, to the degree that, you know, obviously there's been a lot of uh, activity on Capitol Hill in America and we've got 
politicians um, there on both sides of the House, upper and lower, and on both parties, Republican and Democrat, who are pretty much agreed that, you know, there is a sort of, there's a there there, there's something, uh, there's something hidden, there's something buried away. Um, what it is, we're not entirely sure, but it does seem to point to evidence that the authorities, you know, have much more knowledge of non-human intelligence activity you know over the past 80 years than uh they have admitted to and the politicians are also saying give us our technology back i mean well actually it's not their technology of course they think it's crash retrieved technology from downed you know ets et vehicles um non-human intelligence derived um craft and you know i talked to a lot of people about that and they themselves i mean people who know or say they know and certainly have the credentials to know an awful lot more than i do and they believe there's something there that there is you know the politicians are on the trail of something that one day maybe sooner rather than later is going to lead to some form of disclosure that we are not the apex species that we've always believed ourselves to be and that uh i think you know what i draw from this is that we're not any longer talking just about technology that comes from you know some different star system or you know, an exoplanet or whatever. Um, it, it, there may be a component of that, but what we seem to be dealing with instead is a far broader solutions or a data set than that, which appears to be, um, to include, you know, extra dimensional stuff in that, you know, for the, the, for the frequency of sightings to make any kind of sense, you know, and they are evidently, popping up all over the world, you know, multiple times a day, let alone, you know, a week or a month. Um, why would that be about beings coming to visit us on a regular basis from different star systems? I mean, that makes very little sense to me. What makes more sense is that we are dealing with an interdimensional phenomenon predominantly, wherein these things pass in and out of existence uh and for a while in our rather dense reality they materialize and that's when we see them um this is not to say that you know some of those craft aren't coming from other planets and other star systems but you know i think we have to look at this whole thing in the round yeah yeah well fascinating stuff i do you have time, do you think, to go into your UFO sighting or do you want to get going? Is well, I'll, I'll, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll do that and then I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it there, Ben, but because, partly because you can read about this stuff online. But as yeah. we said, um, as I said earlier, you know, I have started this new book. It's serialized. It's called The Light Beyond the Mountains and it does go into... Yeah, my sort of uh, take on, you know, the sort of the whole reality and consciousness journey. 
but it starts with the sighting of uh, a, you know, a genuine UFO in that it was an unidentified flying object, as far as I can make out. But I happened to see it over Area 51, which is anyone yeah. who knows about these things is a top secret base that still exists. But back in 1992, when I saw this thing, um, Area 51 wasn't that well known. You know, it is now. Uh, it was, it only really came into sort of being as a term when I think it was Bob, well, it was Bob Lazar, I think, who first started referring to it as Area 51. Um, I mean, up until then, you know, in my guise as a defense journalist, I'd known it by its other names, which were things like Dreamland, which is what the Air Force mm. referred to it as in secret circles, or Groom Lake, which was the lake on which Area 50, dry lake bed on which Area 51 is constructed. So um, anyway, I pitched up there and I described this in the uh, in the prologue of the book. It was September 1992. It was a very uh, dark night. Well, it was... a it was it was it was night put it that way i think because i think it was soon after sunset and i was there with um a colleague ex-colleague of mine from james defense weekly he was then working as the north america editor of correspondent editor i think for um flight international which is another uh another magazine and we both saw it this ball of orange light that comes up from behind the mountain ranges separating us from area 51 and I, I couldn't explain it then, um, but I got to thinking about it again, as I say then in the following chapter, when in 2017, the New York Times publishes its sort of now famous article about the, the Pentagon having uh, a buried secret UFO investigation unit called ATIP, uh, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And what that did for me was it sort of legitimized, and not just for me, but for many people, actually it legitimized this whole subject of UFOs. Um, I, I started to speak to people about, you know, is this article for real? Did this unit exist? And they all went, yeah, basically, yes. Um, so it sort of rekindled that uh, experience for me. And I thought, well, what did I see? Yeah. And anyway, using that as a sort of portal of entry, it takes me into believe it or not, the whole consciousness realm. So um, anyway, you can uh, wow. uh, you can read all about it on. And I'll put the link in the description if anybody's interested. The The orange uh, ball, did it zip around? Did it stay oh. still, go back down? Any? It was very static, actually. I want to say static. It was quite static. It, it rose above these, these foothills. And then yeah. actually it sort of drifted slowly off downrange um until it dis disappeared from view i think it was blocked by some rocks that yeah were quite nearby to us so we couldn't see it anymore but um that was it that was it yeah and it was how bright was it like, how would you describe the bright anyone who's ever seen close encounters of the third kind the movie there is a bit at the beginning where this uh the these investigators are talking to a old mexican man who says it came up like the sun and it did mm. it was like it was like the sun it looked it it, it was an, of an intense orange hue wow. um and it was remarkable in that respect did it 
did it hurt your eyes at all? No, because it, it was a long way away. So. I mean, it was about, yeah. I mean, we were probably about 18 miles from the base. But, you know, in the in the Nevada desert, uh, there's crystal clarity. You know, there was there was no dust then. It was a still night. You know, we had yeah. binoculars. You could see it very well. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow, awesome. Well, I'll I'll go and read about that. And uh, you say that's in the which part of the the releases that you've put up so far? So I've done it. There's an introduction which gives you a sort of subset sort of asks you to do this. It's a bit like a sort of manifesto. It says, "Here's what you're going to get," you know, over the arc right. of this uh, work. Um, there's an interactive element to it, uh, uh, which I give you some of sort of the background that got me to all of this. Um, then there is the prologue, uh, that's for free. Then there's chapter one, I think you have to pay for, but there's some other free stuff that I sort of bundle up with it as well. So it's a combination of, um, paid for paid subscription and free stuff. So uh, there's, you know, and there's going to be more coming, uh, yeah. week by week. Awesome. Well, as I say, send me the links and I'll make sure they're in the description. Do you have any words or message you want to leave with anybody that's watched and listened to this today? Well, just, you know, it's always enjoyable coming on and talking to you, Ben. I, you know, I say I'm only going to come on for an hour and a half or something, but we always end up talking longer because it's always uh, such interesting stuff, at least for me it is. Um, uh, so just thanks for having me on the show. And, you know, I look forward to the next time. Keep up the good work. Thank you. And sorry for keeping you too long. No, no, no. I didn't mean it like that at all. I, I really have enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> no, me too. Thanks, Nick. My pleasure. And yeah, I look forward to doing it again. Me too. All my best. Cheers. Thank you to Nick Cook for talking with me. Thank you to our patrons for helping us to stay afloat. And thank you for listening. See the description for useful links and much more. Please subscribe to continue unraveling the universe with us. And if you want to support us, please consider a monthly contribution via Patreon. Thank you.